0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the Tech Girls Podcast. This is Trisha Walsh, your Tech Girls Podcast host. On this podcast, we will explore women and girls in technology. We'll hear their stories, dreams, challenges, and triumphs. Today on the Tech Girls Podcast, we have guest Sarah McSorley. Sarah is a people-first project director, writer, and entrepreneur, she is the founder and CEO of Super Cool Scientists LLC, an organization working to promote inclusion in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, also known as STEM. Sarah is changing the narrative for what scientists actually look like and what their day to day work includes through stories and coloring books, spotlighting women in STEM careers. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Hi, Tricia. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Really appreciate you being here. So Sarah, please tell us a little about your childhood and any influences that led to you pursuing a degree in marine biology. Sure. So
1: I grew up on uh, the eastern shore of Maryland, which is sort of right off the Chesapeake Bay and surrounded by the Choptank River. It was only a few blocks away from where I grew up and was always sort of fascinated with all the wildlife that was part of a watershed. So, and I was lucky enough to have uh, a mom who was super encouraging for that curiosity. So we would do camps and things where you could learn more about what was underwater and sort of, you know, on the shoreline. And then I realized we had a field trip to an aquarium when I was in school. And that was kind of the first time I realized that you could actually be a marine scientist as a job. And so from that time on, I kind of figured, oh, I really want to try to see what it means to be a marine biologist and kind of started taking all the classes and all the planning for that. And then the rest was kind of history until I went to college and decided that's what I wanted to try out.
0: Did you have an opportunity in high school to um, take some marine biology classes? I did not. So uh,
1: the the town I'm from is a very small town. So I think we only had like two or three AP classes even at the time uh, that I had taken. So it was there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for sort of extra things like that. I remember doing, you know, activities through the Girl Scouts and things like that, where we got to do more behind-the-scenes stuff at aquariums and things like that, but it was all sort of extra and outside of school for the marine science-related stuff.
0: How did you begin work as a marine biologist when you finished college?
1: Well, so so that's kind of an interesting because I kind of got off track a little bit. I had my first, you know, I went in thinking I wanted to be a researcher, but I didn't actually have my first research project until I was a junior in college. And it was a study abroad program that the University of Rhode Island has where you go to Bermuda and really kind of spend an immersive marine science semester and you're doing a research project independently the entire time as well. And I realized... I don't actually like this, um, as much as I thought I would. Um, so I was looking around and seeing my friends who were really into what they were doing with their research project and it just wasn't sparking anything for me. So it was kind of at that moment where I was like, well, I don't think I want to do research. And after all that time, that was all I had been planning to do Mm because no one had ever said, Oh, this is the other stuff you could do with a science degree. So yeah, you know, junior year of college, almost done. Well, shoot, what am I going to do now? Uh, But luckily, I had some really fantastic uh, mentors, actually also female marine scientists, turns out, uh, who really kind of got me into more of the science outreach and education side. So I started doing some work-study jobs that were still marine science-based, and that was, again, in Rhode Island, it was around Narragansett Bay, and I kind of was more sharing the excitement of the science with other people who normally weren't exposed to it versus doing the research aspect myself which I realized I enjoyed a lot more. So it was still a way to do the science component, but I wasn't doing the research like I had initially thought I was going to do when I was a kid.
0: Um, I neglected to ask, where did you go to school? I heard University of Rhode Island. Is that right?
1: Yep, that's, that's right. So University of Rhode Island for my undergrad in marine bio. And then actually right after graduation, I started working for, uh, it was a big national science foundation project based out of University of Rhode Island that was really trying to advance marine science research and education throughout the whole state. So we worked with nine different uh, colleges in Rhode Island and did a lot of K-12 outreach work too. And I started doing their sort of outreach work. They needed a newsletter and I had just graduated. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Um, and then over time, some other people had left and I pretty quickly became their, their project administrator for the entire $20 million project, which was kind of scary at first because okay. I didn't have any finance experience or anything like that but it was actually I think I learned more in a shorter period of time than I would have had anywhere else uh, which was really great mm-hmm. and um, so during all of that I also went back to get my master's in business administration at the University of Rhode Island as well.
0: How was the idea for Super Cool Scientists Book Born?
1: Well so kind of Two things in parallel were happening when the idea first came to me. I was, you know, I had kind of gotten away from the science in my day to day work. I'd gotten more into project administration, and then I had uh, moved to Connecticut and was doing. Um, I was a direct. I'm a director at Wesleyan University for now. You know, I got more into project administration, uh, which. I enjoy that aspect too, but I really kind of missed the science piece. I wasn't having enough of that. So I wanted some sort of side project that could bring some more science back for me to get excited about. So I was trying to figure out what that could look like. And then at the same time, I was dealing with some of my own anxiety issues and trying to figure out uh, you know what strategies worked for me to deal with those, because there are different things that that help different people. And uh, turns out for me, one of the things in my kit that helps is sort of a, the adult coloring piece and that actually it was kind of right before adult coloring became such a fad because I remember having a conversation with my mom who graduated with a degree in uh, psychology and, and sociology and she was like oh you know when I went to college we talked about how like coloring helped with stress and these things like maybe you should try that and I did and it's one of the things that helped so I was kind of looking for coloring books that I would like and at the time when I googled women in science coloring book nothing came up. And we all know how rare that is to try to Google something and have no no answers. So uh, that was kind of when it clicked, you know, maybe this is my project. You know, it would bring more science back to me. It would sort of be bringing a tool um, to other people to get exposure to different science careers and what they look like. And also a way to kind of really bring representation to the forefront of um, what women in science actually look like and do with their day-to-day, not just in their work, but outside of work as well.
0: How did you connect with all the um, different women for the super cool scientists? Mm-hmm. So that was
1: probably one of my favorite parts of the whole project. And I think it was different for different ones. So like some of the women in the first book are were role models of my own. Uh, so like Dr. Sylvia Earle, uh, Dr. Ashanti Johnson, Dr. Mairea Mayor. Those were all people who I had known and looked up to. So kind of started by reaching out to them um, and not really expecting to hear back like it was sort of uh, an interesting thing because I was sort of saying here's this idea that I have do you want to be a part of it And like oh by the way I've never done anything like this before uh so but they all signed on which was exciting and I remember kind of geeking out when one of them called me when I was on vacation because I was really excited they wanted to be a part of it and then you know a lot of the other features you know some came from connections through former people I had worked with that job I did at the University of Rhode Island for that whole statewide project. you know, As a National Science Foundation program, we had a national network that I got to interact with, with researchers from all over the country, and some of those people had suggestions for women who might be interested, and then just some internet research as well. And then it was really just kind of reaching out, describing what the idea was, uh, why it was important, and then seeing if, if people wanted to be a part of it. And overwhelmingly, uh,
0: the women I reached out to were really interested and excited to be a part of it. Through some of the women that you were able to connect with, did that also build other connections? Did they make recommendations and say, hey, you should reach out to so-and-so? Yep,
1: I think that's that's pretty common for a lot of folks who hear about the book, uh, whether it's the people who were in it or just people I know who know scientists in their own lives. So I have this sort of ongoing list of, you know, all the women in science that I hear about. So I get a lot of other sort of suggestions from them. And then also connections to other pieces, whether that would be other... Uh, you know, potentials for media coverage, or schools who'd want to do bulk purchases of the book, or things like that, I would, you know, a lot of times, even the women who were in the first book still reach out to me with ideas like that, or things that come up, which is great. So it's sort of led to some of these longer term collaborations, which is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. With only, there are 22 women in the first book. And when you think about it, that's really not that many, especially when I was trying to make sure that there was a wide range of, of STEM fields represented and also a wide range of women as individuals represented too. So the goal for the book was really to make sure whoever, whoever picked it up had one connection point to at least one of the people in the book, whether that was through their illustration and what they looked like or through their, their story, um, you know, what they were interested in, what they liked to do as kids, kind of trying to create as many connections points as possible. So like having the diversity represented in the book was really important from the beginning as well. Mm. So I kind of had to keep all that in mind when I was picking who was going to be in the book, especially as we got down to the end, and you only have a few slots left, you know? And it's sort of interesting, as I was starting to do the research for all the people in the book, I noticed that I had a whole bunch of marine scientists, um, just because that's kind of what I'm drawn to. But then I had to go back and like, okay, this isn't a marine science book, (laughs) this is a STEM book. So I have to kind of, you know, keep checking with myself to make sure I kind of had that, that range represented that I wanted.
0: We are going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll hear from Sarah about her future projects. We'll be right back. This episode of the Tech Girls podcast is brought to you by all the amazing contributors to our Indiegogo campaign. We want to especially recognize our givers at the Tech Girls champion level. They are Cindy and Steve Walsh, Lauren and Fermin Mata, Sonia Dillon, Dave Walsh and Yvette Romero Aguilera A special thank you goes out to Jim McAway, who contributed at the Tech Girls Superstar level Thank you all for sharing our vision of bringing the stories of girls and women in technology to this podcast Welcome back to the Tech Girls Podcast. So, Sarah, are you working on another book project? Uh, yes, actually, I am. So,
1: illustrator Yvonne Page and I are working on a second volume of Super Cool Scientists. So, it'll be the same idea as the first one, but with a different cohort of of women, um, having some fields represented we didn't have in the first one. And the goal for that is to have that done by the end of the end of the summer.
0: If money or backing was no object, what other projects would you start?
1: You know, I'd really like to be able to write full time if money were no option. I didn't have to worry about having a day job to pay the bills, so to speak, mm-hmm. and really just not just expand on the coloring book aspect, but sort of some other, you know, some other formats and some other ways to tell even more stories of really dynamic scientists who are out there doing this really interesting work. I think sort of. The humanizing factor of scientists is really important and an important piece of science communication. That's something I'd like to be able to spend more time doing in sort of a a different or an expanded format than what I'm doing now, if I could really dedicate all my time to doing that.
0: Sarah, what do you perceive as the greatest challenges of getting greater diversity, including girls, interested in STEM today? Uh, this
1: is, I think this is a question we all think about a lot. Uh, anybody sort of in this sphere of diversity and inclusion work who's paying attention to it. And I think one of the, the biggest things to remember is it's about recruitment and retention. So I think especially when you're talking about girls and kids, you know, science is, is fun. It's, it can be loud. It can be messy. Like, it's easy to get kids excited about it. I think it's a little harder, you know, as we get older and sort of remembering that, providing those supports kind of along the career trajectory uh, are also really important. And for the, the retention piece, you know, it's not just coming up with, with hiring processes that, you know, are more intentional for hiring diverse teams, but also coming up with sort of really creating the culture that's inclusive for the people who are already there. And I think that's, that's harder because you're changing culture is difficult and it takes a lot of time, but I think that's one of the things that we have to kind of stay focused on as well. It's not just getting more women and more people of color into the, into the fold, it's making sure we're coming up with, you know, in ways to make the environment not just welcoming to everybody, but really spaces that are, that it's clear that the work is valued uh, from everyone who's there and that there really is sort of this importance and growth that comes from diverse
0: perspectives. It's one thing to get folks in the door. It's another thing to help them succeed year one, year two, year three. Right, and even I mean, even just this morning,
1: I was reading an article in the in the New York Times that was in Medium originally for you know, kind of talking about how women and specifically women of color are still you know expected to have more of the office chore type work, like ordering lunches for meetings or taking minutes or things like that. Mm. And sort of you know, the the author of the article was talking about ways to be more intentional for uh that not being a thing and how to sort of rotate those responsibilities a little bit more and then also ways for you know women to politely kind of say no to those types of things without worrying about whether or not it was going to affect you know the way that they're perceived at work Mm -hmm. and so i think that was i mean that's kind of the little stuff that we don't always necessarily think about but it does take time away from the other things that we're doing and it's just kind of a built-in expectation like a lot of times I don't think people even realize they're doing it unless it's brought up and kind of called out and then they'd be like, Oh, okay. And then kind of pay attention to it in a more intentional way in the future.
0: What else can we do as women scientists and technologists to promote greater inclusion in our fields?
1: So I think I looked back for this one for a a tip sheet that I've made for a presentation I did a couple months ago. And, you know, again, going back to like it being about recruitment, retention, and the representation part. So for starters, Really, kind of thinking beyond the lab coat. So, you know, where I went through and realized, oh my God, I don't want to do research. What can I do now? Kind of making sure that, that young people know there are a lot of different things you can do with science careers or what I've sometimes called science adjacent careers. So, there's a lot of other work you can do in education or in policy, all kinds of things that aren't just, you know, the strict like research in a lab coat that you may think about when you hear scientist. And then also, you know, sometimes the thing kids do, they may not even realize they're STEM related. So, you know, whether it's they're interested in really helping people or the environment or different ways to use their creativity or explore the world, like those are all things you can do with the sciences too, but they may not think about that. So kind of finding out ways to make, help them make those connections by exploring some of those interests a little bit more and really just, you know, also telling the stories of science. Like we're doing through this book or, you know, helping young people find other stories of scientists. You know, I think we're starting to see a lot more resources out there telling those stories, especially online, which is great. Like, you know, it's not difficult these days to find an actual, you know, living scientist, so to speak, online and find out more about what they're doing and how they got there, which is really great. And I think all of that kind of helps make it more relatable where young people can maybe picture themselves a little bit better in some of those those types of careers.
0: We are going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll hear from Sarah about where she finds inspiration. We'll be right back. Hello, listeners. I wanted to use this break to keep up our tradition of talking about lessons learned so far in making this podcast. In episode three, we talked about checking the memory card in the recorder before starting an interview. In this episode, we took our first stab at recording a phone interview. There are times you may not even notice, but there are certainly other times that sound somewhat tinny or that Sarah sounds far away. For future phone interviews, we will spend more research time on being prepared to record with Google Voice or another VoIP service to improve sound quality. Keep sharing your feedback with us so we can continue to improve. We can be found on Twitter, Facebook, or emailing us at info That's info at techgirls.com. One other thing, we need guests. We need your help recruiting or identifying guests. We want to be sure to include the voices of women of color to join us on the podcast. So please remember that when drumming up ideas. Please send us any ideas for guests you have or nominate yourself. Thank you for coming along for our journey. And now back to Tech Girls, the podcast. Welcome back to the Tech Girls podcast. Sarah, where do you look for inspiration? I think uh, one of the most important things for me is to really... Surround
1: myself with good people. Sort of finding my people and making sure that those are the people who are there for me to reach out to. Yeah, I think the the last few years for me, both professionally and personally, there's been some pretty big challenges. And sort of having the folks around who I know are going to be supportive and kind of the cheerleader for trying something totally new and kind of pushing me to be a little bit better. Like that really helps a lot, and that continues to push me. Like this whole book project. Like I'd never written a book. I'd never done a, a Kickstarter. We funded the first one successfully with a crowdfunding campaign. I'd never done anything like that. And you're, you're asking people to fund an idea that's not even a thing yet. Um, you know, I was really used to asking people for money for programs because I've done grant writing as a lot of my professional work for years. But this felt really different and kind of intimidating. So sort of having those people around me to remind me. That, you know, you're just as capable to do this and other people do it, there's no reason you can't it was kind of really helpful. So I think sort of, you know, finding your people is one of the biggest pieces of advice I give out to for folks who, you know, either are having a hard time or want to jump in and try to find something new. And that can be anything, like family, friends, mentors, sort of whatever um, combination of people that you need. But I think the other thing that's been really good since the book has come out is when I do book events, and go talk to people about the book. Like, It's really energizing to see the young people who are reading the book and learning about the stories and they're sharing their coloring pages. I think that's one of the best things about the entire project. And every time I hear from a young reader, that's super motivating for me too.
0: When thinking about your second book, what will you do differently in either the second book or other future projects based on what you learned launching Super Cool Scientists?
1: Like I mentioned, this whole thing was totally new uh, for me with the first one. So I think I've learned just some of the logistics that make it a little easier the second time around. You know, having some sort of stock interview questions for getting background on the people who were featured. A little bit more with the promotion and marketing, so sort of how to word things that maybe I didn't write correctly the first time or I can write them in a more engaging way now for people to learn about the book. And also I think you know I did it as a self-published thing the first time around and I think that that's still the plan for the second one but you know for the promotion and marketing piece of it you know I'm not I'm not a salesman at heart so to speak so I think what I've learned is for future things not to try to do it all by myself to really try to figure out the areas that like you know I know what my strengths are but figuring out the areas where I really could use some more expertise and kind of leaning on the network to find out those those things a
0: little bit more to really try to get the get the book out there to more people. As you prepare for the launch of the second book, are there women in the community of scientists, math, etc., um, that could continue to offer you support uh, through the next couple of months as you prep for that book?
1: I think so. I think uh, you know the group of women who were in the first one, and then the group of women who are, are going to be in the second one. You know, I'm in touch with them pretty regularly at this point for sort of putting the final touches on the biographies and, you know, making sure all those are accurate and that the illustrations kind of match what they would like them to look like. And then also figuring out, you know, the resources that should be in the book um, that may match up with the work that they do, whether they're day-to-day or the outreach work that's so important to so many of the people in the book. I think sort of that that's helpful too and the more I hear back from people it's sort of the reminder of like oh like this is my time frame I'm not just doing it for me I'm doing it for all these people too and that kind of helps hold me accountable for it
0: Are there podcasts that you listen to Sarah?
1: I have a, a whole list of, of podcasts and uh, some of my favorites are actually I learned about from the women in the first book so uh, Dr. Liz Wayne is a, a physicist who's featured in uh, Super Cool Scientists and she and one of her uh, English professor, professional counterparts do a podcast called PH Divas, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. So it's sort of the humanity side and the science side of, of higher ed and academia, and they talk about all different kinds of, of issues, uh, which is fantastic. And then the other one that actually started right after the book was published is called Femmes of STEM, and that one is hosted by uh, Michelle Barbosa, who's in the first book, and and that one really focuses on um, some women from history and the women from history that we don't hear about that often. And she has, you know, guests on who are current women in science talking to her about some of these these historical women in science and kind of connecting some of the issues that they may have dealt with with some of the current issues that we deal with today as women in science. Mm-hmm. So those those are both really good. Um and recently I've been listening to the Goodnight Rebel Girls podcasts. So, like, those are two fantastic books that are out there right now, and they just uh, they just put out a podcast, sort of talking about some of the women in their books, which is fantastic. And the one that's not STEM related, but has been a lot of fun, is called "Stuff Mom Never Told You," uh-huh. um, which is which is a really fun one that's been that's been on
0: repeat lately for me. Yeah, one of the um, sister podcasts to that one, because it all comes through um, how stuff works, is um, what you missed in history class, stuff you missed in mm-hmm. history class. And with two women hosts for that podcast, they also make sure that they deep dive into some women in history, and they do certainly touch on scientists and other leaders, whether they were recognized being at the forefront of a movement or just a member of, making sure that those stories are also told. So I appreciate that about them. Is there a piece of art that has ever influenced you? A piece of art? I don't know. I mean, I think I've been, always been a big
1: reader but I don't think I have like a favorite book per se. I just kind of like to take in all kinds of things. And I've always really loved art museums and things like that, really sort of loved the Impressionist movement. Uh, but I don't think there's been sort of specific pieces that have really been super inspiring for me. It's sort of just something I think is important to do is sort of um, you know expose yourself to those different types of art forms. And not just visual art either, but, you know, working at Wesleyan for five years, I was exposed to a lot more uh, dance and types of music that I had never really been exposed to before, which was interesting. Kind of all just, you know, opening up the things that you know about isn't so important.
0: Thank you, Sarah, for being on the Tech Girls podcast. To learn more about Sarah and the Super Cool Scientist project, please visit supercoolscientist.com. That's supercoolscientists.com. Tune in to the next Tech Girls podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thank you for listening. The music you are enjoying right now is composed by Susan Davis Warren and recorded by Matt Sebaslian for the Tech Girls podcast.